Well, hey, good evening. Welcome to Element City Church. My name is Lyle. I'm one of the pastors here. We just want to say thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're excited to have you in the building. And if you're joining us from home, uh, tuning in on the live stream, we want to welcome you as well. If you're tuning in online, just a couple quick things for you. One, we've got great online hosts who want to take care of you. So if you have prayer requests, questions on anything, you can drop a comment in the chat. And hey, we haven't heard where people are from in a while. So maybe drop in where you're tuning in from. Uh, we've had people tune in from Russia, from Scotland, from Ukraine. Ukraine, Pennsylvania, Louisiana. We've got folks from all over uh, the country and all around the world who've tuned in uh, to our church services. That's pretty crazy. Uh, That's life in the 21st century, I guess, right? Uh, So anywho, uh, for those of you who are in the room, welcome. If you're new, we want to thank you for joining us tonight. So we want to make you aware of a couple of things. One, uh, you're our honored guest. And so we want to meet you, get to know about you. So we have the 10-minute party afterward, which means one of us will be in the back for no more than 10 minutes. And we uh, are going to be back there so that we can catch your name, get to know a little bit about you. And we want to give you a gift. We want to give you the best kettle corn that you'll ever have south of the Grand Canyon. That's a pretty lofty claim. I understand that. I understand it. But it is the best kettle corn south of the Grand Canyon. It's pretty, pretty stinking good. So make sure you head to the back to pick that up. Uh, you can also uh, get us some information so that we can connect with you if you want to text in uh, to 520-340-6868. Just text the word hello. You'll get a link. You can tap the link. You can fill out the information. Bring that to the back after the service, and we'll also get you some of that, uh, that kettle corn that everybody's pretty jealous to try. Uh, for sure. So uh, if you don't have the church app as well, make sure you download that. Element City Church, you can find that in the Google Play Store and the App Store. That's where you can stay up to date on all the latest events, things that are going on. Like this week, we've got our second Saturday food distribution that'll be here, uh, which means we're also going to be packing those boxes on Friday morning. Uh, So we're always looking for folks who can make it out to help us out with that at Caring Ministries. Um, But yeah, Let's all stand together as we get started. We're going to sing some songs of worship. We're going to go through a passage in the Word together uh, as well. Uh, And we just want to pray. We want to pray for the Church of the Week, which is Desert Skies United Methodist Church and their pastor. uh, It's Reverend Candace Lansbury. We're going to pray for them uh, and just pray for us tonight that God would meet us here, that God would speak to us here. Uh, Yeah, so join me in prayer. Father, thanks for tonight. We want to thank you for the work that you want to do in advance. God, would you begin to increase our expectations now of what it is that you want to do, of how you want to speak to us and how you want to move in our hearts and our lives in this little bit of time that we've set aside to give to you, to gather together as a community, to lift you up, Jesus. We love you and we're excited for the work that you're going to do. And so we just pray for a fresh and a powerful move of your Holy Spirit in this place tonight. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive you the way that you would desire that we would. And God, we want to lift up uh, Desert Skies United Methodist Church. We want to lift up their pastor, uh, Reverend Candace Lansbury. We pray for her and her husband, God, that you would strengthen their relationship. And uh, just reading about them in their church this week, uh, they just seem like really sharp individuals, really smart, God. And so we just ask that you would use them uh, to expand your kingdom on the east side of Tucson where they're at, God. Would you help them to make a difference and an impact in their community, to minister uh, to the church the way that you would desire that they would, uh, and to to let Desert Skies just be a beacon of light, a beacon of hope uh, that's shining the hope of Jesus for people to see, God. So would you provide for them all that they need, uh, whether it be financial needs, whether it be vision needs, whatever it would be, God. Uh, We know that it's your church, that's your bride, and you're going to take 
take care of her. You're going to fight for her and you're going to push her forward to be her best, God. So we trust you uh, with all that you want to do tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, church. Let's worship our King tonight because He is worthy of all the praise. Amen.
but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me.
Yeah. 
make the new wine, break the new crown, whatever that is. These things come sometimes through pain, through crushing and pressing and pruning and cutting. And we uh, oppose that. We don't want that. But yet you are making something beautiful. So some of the things in us have to die. So the new things have to grow in you, Lord. And you are like that beautiful gardener who takes play, who takes care of the garden. And you're always growing something beautiful. But the seed has to die first in the soil, in the ground, in the darkness. So Lord, tonight we submit before you. We surrender before you. We come before you in obedience, Lord. And we just want you to do your work in us. Take the pride away, Lord. We lay our crowns down before your holy throne and we lift you up, the King of glory. King of glory. May you be magnified. May you be, may you be praised tonight. You're the only one who is seated on the throne. You deserve all the glory and praise. And here we are, Lord. Here we are waiting for you. Holy Spirit, move and do your work. We submit to you, God. We worship you, God. We're thankful for tonight, Lord. May you bless Lyle as he's bringing the word tonight. Speak through him, Holy Spirit, as we are waiting. We are opening our hearts to hear so we can be changed. Would you transform us the way that only you can? Lord, we pray all these things in your beautiful and precious name. And everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Man, can you believe it is November already? Right? Like, no, that's exactly how it just, it kind of clicked that this is the first week in November. And uh, man, if I think back to 2020, it just felt like that was the year that stretched on uh, forever right, just forever, and then here we are, we're already in November. Uh, and the reason I bring up November is because uh, I've always loved this month. November is one of my favorite months of the year. I love when the weather starts to shift and it starts to get cooler. And sadly, in Arizona, that's when that finally happens. We have to wait till November to see that happen. I love Thanksgiving. I love getting together with family. Uh, I just have wonderful memories of being at my uncle's house in Tempe and getting together with my cousins and uh, what that was. And also, November is the month that I got married. So my wife and I, Anya, she was up here leading worship. We get to celebrate our 11th anniversary this month on the 20th. Uh, so we're excited about that. Yes, yes. And what's cool about that is uh, now that we're at 11 years, uh, we've, we're basically taking the average length of a marriage in the country now and we're pulling it up. Like, that's good news to me. Uh, in researching for this message, uh, I looked that up and saw that the current uh, average length of a marriage in America is 8.3 years. 8.3 years. It's fascinating. Um, 8.3 years. That's all it takes before the average couple is breaking up. And that's terrible. You know, like that's an awful thing. And when you think about it, why does that happen? What is it about that time frame that it seems that, that things can start to go south? And, and my theory is this. It's just once you get like a year, two, three years in, uh, you finally know each other, right? There's no longer this like I'm on my best behavior all the time. 
For any of you who are out there and you're single and you're wondering about dating, let me just give you this. This is your free piece of advice. Dating is a lie. The whole thing's a lie, right? Like you're not being honest truly about who you are. It's like, I'm going to let them know this little bit about myself. I'm going to let them know, you know, what I want to let them know at the right time. But as you go through different seasons of life, you get to the point where you can no longer hide. And in a lot of marriages, when that finally starts to happen, people wake up and realize, I don't even know who this was that I married. And they start to struggle through that. It's a terrible thing. It's a sad thing, really, that, uh, that people don't go into to a relationship with their eyes wide open. And why do I tell you that? I tell you that because uh, for Anya and for me, we actually, we only saw each other in each other's presence for about seven weeks before we got married, if you can believe that. We met in January of 2010. We got married in November of 2010. And she was in Florida and in Ukraine for the vast majority of that time. And so we had to get to know each other over Skype. Uh, I don't even know if it was Skype back then or if it was just Apple, whatever their video chat thing was. And uh, so we had to get to know each other over video. And then when we were in person with each other, you better believe I was on my best behavior, right? But we get into the first year of marriage, and that's when we had to white knuckle it a few times as we're starting to learn each other. Because now it's not just that I'm living with this person, it's like I'm living with this person that I don't really fully know. And uh, man, there's, it's really embarrassing for me. But growing up, I hate onions, okay? I don't like onions. How many of you in the room, you just, you could bite into a raw onion? That's disgusting, right? Like, I just, I can't do it. The texture of it, the flavor of it. And even when it's cooked, my mom knew like she had to dice them up real tiny to put them into the food. And if she did that, then she could get them in and I wouldn't complain too much about it. And so I couldn't even tell you what it was. I think she said earlier today, she made stuffed peppers. And this was like the third night in a row in our first year of marriage that she made something that had these big chunks of onions in it. And I'm just like, are you trying to kill me, woman? What is going on? Not my shining moment as a husband, right? Like she's just adding flavor to the food and I'm basically accusing her of trying to kill me. Uh, Yeah, that got a lot more laughs this morning. You all feeling okay? Do you not like jokes? No? Would that hit too close to home for a few of you? No, I'm just kidding. So, uh, anywho, she, she had the right response. It was like, if you don't like my cooking, go cook for yourself. And I did. So I got up, I made macaroni and cheese, and that was my dinner that night. And not only that, I, I had it with a side of guilt, if we're being honest. It was a huge plate of guilt, actually, where I was like, man, I really, uh, I messed that one up. And I had to apologize for that one and to make things right. But again, the reason I tell you this, uh, any person who's in a relationship in this room, you understand. It takes work, doesn't it, to make that relationship what it's supposed to be, to make that relationship strong. It requires a lot of things. It requires communication and sacrifice. Uh, There's a lot of, of effort that goes into all of that. And not just that. You have to figure out what it is that your significant other needs from you. And then you have to figure out how can I be the person that can help give that to them if that's your place to give it. What we're going to see tonight as we begin a new series called The Stories of Jesus is we're going to see uh, in the parable of the two sons that God has a, a love language. And, you know, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said that women were never meant to be understood. Women were meant to be loved. Right? Husbands, how many of you understand your wives? Right? None of us. Not a single hand went up. Because if one did, I guarantee you, your wife's hand would have been right in your gut right away. Like immediately. Like it just, it, it, that's not our ability, guys, is it? 
the, the nice thing is with God, he, he's not a mystery. He's not someone that can't be understood because God has given us his word and he's told us through his word how we can love him, how we can follow after him. He's made it clear to us as his people what it is that he wants from us. And we're gonna look at that tonight. So if you've got the church app, you can follow along in the notes there. You can open the Bible app and go to the events section and find Element City Church uh, to follow along there. But we're gonna be in the book of Matthew tonight, uh, chapter 21. We're gonna be looking at verses 28 through 32. So I'll give you a couple moments for those of you who still have the paper Bibles uh, to get there or if you're pulling it up on your phone. Matthew chapter 21 verses 28 through 32. Uh, and this is what it says. It says, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He's in the temple. And he says, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son, the father did, and said the same. And the younger son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? The Pharisees said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Dane Ortland has a book that he calls Gentle and Lowly. It's about Jesus. And we think of Jesus, right? If we're in American culture, if we think of the Jesus that most of us would think of, uh, a lot of times he's got his blonde hair almost and blue eyes and he's carrying lambs all the time. I don't know why he has a, an obsession with sheep, but he's always carrying the lambs or maybe a child. He's got children. He likes to carry babies around too. And so basically it's not this Jesus that we see in the Bible. It's Swedish Jesus that many people uh, have described over the years. And what we see in this passage here is not the gentle and lowly Jesus. This is the spicy Jesus, right? How do we go from a story about a father asking his kids to go work and now all of a sudden he's telling these guys, hey, the hookers and the thieves are going to be in heaven before you ever get to go to heaven. Jesus put some hot sauce on these comments, right? He is not holding back. This isn't Jesus with the sheep around his neck. This is Jesus with the whip. And it's fascinating to look at this passage. So we're going to jump right into the five-minute nerd out, right? Like, I love to nerd out about context. The context is so important here. Some of you have your nerd hats. Get your nerd hat on. Buckle up, because here's the context. This is the book of Matthew. And what that means is, is it's written to a group of Jewish people. I don't know if you know this, but all of the gospels have an intended audience. And so each person who wrote their gospel, they were trying to write it to communicate something to a specific group of people. And Matthew's writing to a group of Jewish people. This is why Matthew makes such a big deal about the week that Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. So when this story is taking place, this is the last week of Jesus's ministry before he gets crucified. And so if you know anything about Jesus' last week, he goes into the temple. One of the first things he does is he drives everybody out of the temple and he makes a whip and he's literally whipping people to get them out of the temple because the people who run the temple have basically, like he said, this was meant to be a house of prayer and you've turned this place into a den of thieves because the, the leaders of the temple were exacting ridiculous taxes and they were selling all of these animals for the people to sacrifice and they were making a profit off of the people who were trying to come to meet with God. 
And so there's this barrier that didn't need to be there that the Jewish leaders were putting in the way. And Jesus is not happy about it. So if you were to read Matthew 21, what you would see is right before this story takes place, the Pharisees have kind of had it, okay? Remember, the Pharisees, they're the ones in charge of the temple. They're the authorities of the temple. And so they come to Jesus and they say, by what authority are you doing the things that you're doing here? And Jesus knows what they're asking. He's not saying, uh, you know, he's, they're not asking, uh, like, who told you you could do this? And he's like, oh, Bill did. Oh, yeah, fine, carry on, right? Like, he knows because these are the temple leaders themselves. They're not really asking by what authority you do this. What they're saying is, who do you think you are? And so Jesus, ever the wise man that he was, he shoots back a question. He's like, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Only if you answer this question for me. And he asked them, John the prophet, John the Baptist, was he from God or not? And so he immediately backs the Pharisees into a corner when he asks this question. Why? It's because all of the people, all of Jesus' followers are there with him. They're watching the Pharisees. People are watching this go down. And if you know anything about the size of the temple, picture like Costco times three, right? Like that's a lot of people that are in this area at this point in time. And so Jesus puts the Pharisees on the spot and he knows exactly what he's doing because the Pharisees don't care about answering that question correctly. Here's why. If the Pharisees answer, well, yeah, of course John came from God, then Jesus could quickly just shoot back, well, then why didn't you believe him? I'm the one that he was preaching about. They knew he could say that, but they also couldn't say, well, he was just a man. He wasn't really a prophet. And the, the word tells us, it tells us that they knew that the people considered John to be a prophet, to be from God. And so if they denied his being a prophet, the people would turn on them real quick. So in an effort to preserve their leadership and to keep their, their position of authority, they get agnostic real quick. And they tell Jesus, we don't know. We don't know. And so Jesus responds, well, then I'm not gonna tell you by what authority I'm doing any of these things. And that could have been a mic drop moment already, right? Like he's already embarrassed them and he could have been like, well, see you guys later. Chew on that one, right? He doesn't do that. He immediately goes into this story. That's the context of this story. He says, what do you think? And then he goes through this story. How many of you have kids? How many of you can relate to just asking your children to, to do something? And so many times, right, like you can never just ask them to, hey, would you go do this? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. I love you so much that I'm just ready to do everything that you've asked me to do. That's not parenting. That's just not the way it is, right? Like I remember my brother and, and for me, like we were just vastly different in this way. My brother was the second one who was just always, yeah, I can do whatever. That's fine, parents. Yeah, oh, okay. And then he'd go in his room and he'd play video games or he'd get lost on a computer or whatever. And uh, he'd never get the thing done. And I was the one who's like, I will not do that. I have no desire to do that thing. That sounds terrible. And then eventually again, right? Like the story with Anya, like the guilt would settle in. I'm like, oh, I can't let my parents down. Oh, I got to go clean my room. And so I just go and I would do it and I'd get it done. And that's not to pat myself on the back or anything, right? Like I was six years old. Let's calm down for a moment here. Uh, but you, most of you in the room, if you've got kids or if you just, most of us can relate. And so the point of this story, the point that Jesus is making is twofold. First and foremost, he wants us to, to see what, what pleases God. It's obedience. 
I think a lot of times we get this idea in our head because God loves a cheerful giver that if I'm gonna do anything to be obedient to God, I have to do it always and every time with the right attitude. And Jesus is breaking us of that thought right now. Jesus wants your obedience, even if it comes with a little bit of grumpiness. Because at the end of the day, his greatest desire for you is to be able to follow after him, to keep his commands. But the other point that he's making here is he's kind of flipping things upside down. That's why he snaps on that little bit of spice at the end and he says, I tell you what, you're right. The first one was the obedient child. And the ones who are actually obedient, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they heard the message of John the Baptist. What was the message of John the Baptist? It was to repent for the kingdom is near. He was calling people to repentance because he knew Jesus was coming after him. And he wanted people to have their hearts ready to receive the savior of the world. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, as Jesus refers to them, he even says, you saw this in them. They responded to John's message. But notice that the religious leaders didn't. And this is where Jesus flips the kingdom upside down. And he says, I tell you what, even those folks, the greatest undesirables, like the ones that you would not ever want to see in front of you. If you're a Jewish, good Jewish leader, gosh, the tax collectors were awful. They stole from you. The way that they made their living was by collecting the taxes for the Caesar back in Rome, but they would charge whatever they wanted to and anything that they could get on top of the money that they were supposed to to turn in for taxes, they kept for themselves. So these people are the scourge to, if you, to any person who's a part of this Jewish culture at that point in time. Prostitutes, right? If you're a religious person and you're being compared to a sex worker and you're hearing that the sex worker is getting into the kingdom before you, what should you do? You should probably repent. And yet they didn't do that. They didn't do that. See, the true people of God are those who repent and are those who are then obedient to him. This is what Leon Morris said in his commentary on Matthew. Jesus' interrogators had known what John demanded all right, but they did not respond. They did not believe. People whom they despised, the tax collectors, and the harlots were more open to John's message. They did not believe him, which means that they, uh, or sorry, they did believe him, which means that they responded to his call for repentance and amended their whole way of living and of their approach to God. Clearly the change was evident for Jesus says you had seen this, but even the evidence of what a true response to John's preaching could do in people's lives did not produce a change in the conventionally religious. They did not repent afterward. They did not believe John. And so that leads me to this question. Are we so convinced of our religious intentions that our actions are no longer aligned with them? That's a heavy question to process. Are we so convinced of our own religious intentions that our actions no longer align with them? Because in the parable of the two sons, it's a story about obedience. You had one son, he had really great intentions, but did he do the will of the father? No. You can respond, it's okay. Guys, real quiet tonight. You can give me a little more than that, that's all right. The one who didn't want to do the will of the Father, who made it clear that he didn't want to do it. He was the one who actually did it. His actions aligned with what it was that God wanted them to do. And so what we see here is God is more impressed by our performance than he is by our promises. 
He's more impressed by our performance than he is by our promises because obedience is about what we actually do, not about what we intend to do. Part of the fun uh, aspect of relationships too is just as you get to know a person, as you get to kind of learn their love language, right? And I said, God has a love language here. God made it clear in his word how he wants to be known. And so I remember for Anya and for me, as we were kind of learning each other and learning each other's rhythms, uh, one thing that really Anya valued was quality time. That was really her big main love language. And it makes sense because I was working in a retail position uh, for almost 10 years to where we didn't have a lot of evenings together, a lot of time that we got to see each other. We had maybe one or two days a week that that could actually happen. And so the greatest thing that would bring her joy is if I could just put my phone away, my devices away, and if I could give her my undivided attention, we'd have great conversation and she would feel very loved. But what happens when you're an introvert like me is like five minutes into the conversation, you get a thought. And then that thought just like keeps nagging at you. And then you start chasing that thought. And next thing I know, it's like, oh, that requires a little bit of research. I might need to look that up online. And all the while, she's like, I'm still telling you a story. What are you doing? Right? So I had to learn to like really control myself. I'm still not great at it, to be honest. Uh, but what was interesting was this year, uh, when we went to the marriage retreat, we did the uh, inventory to look at our love languages and what they are. And now that we both have actually had career changes this past year, rather than quality time being the number one ranked thing, it was acts of service. And that was great for me, folks. That was great because I'm so good at that one. I'm so good at it, right? Like, I don't mind vacuuming. It's annoying sometimes, but at the end of the day, it's like five minutes, right? It's like cleaning the room when my parents asked me to clean the room. And so this week, we've had uh, our unit was sprayed for bugs, right? So like we've had like the dying bugs in the corners. And she's like, hey, can you vacuum? That's disgusting. And it's like, yeah, sure, absolutely. I can get the vacuuming done. This morning, we had some friends over last night. Uh, the dishwasher was just jam-packed. It was full of so many dishes. I'm making breakfast. I'm emptying the dishwasher. And this is great. These are just nothing things to me. And what we see and what we've learned for any of you who understand when you speak each other's love languages, when, when you feel loved and seen and validated and heard, you're going to open up the treasures of your heart, the treasures of your soul to share that with another person. And so if I want to experience the treasures that my wife has to offer, I have to make sure that I'm communicating in a way that she feels loved. And again, God has made it clear to us how we can love him. Jesus tells us this in John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. He says this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That word abide, it's remain. If it translates like right here, Jesus wants you right here next to him right here in his love. He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's a beautiful passage because Jesus is unlocking the key for us. He's saying, you wanna know what makes the Father happy? I keep the Father happy by keeping his commandments. You wanna remain in my love? Keep my commandments. And so I get it. We're sitting here tonight. We're a room full of adults and we're talking about obedience. How popular is that word? Some of you, as soon as you heard, oh yeah, this is about obedience, you're probably like, oh my gosh, that's 
ugh, right? We don't like that. It's just not in us to want to be obedient to anybody else once we hit kind of a certain age. And that's usually in our teenage years, right? Like, even as an adult, you're like, you don't know me. Don't tell me what to do. You're not my dad. Like, we all feel that tension where it's like, don't tell me who I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to do. And we want this freedom. We want this. And what we have to see, what Jesus is communicating in this passage, is God is not demanding obedience from us because he's a wicked dictator. What God is demanding from us when he's asking for obedience is for our own goodness because he says there's a promise attached to this. When we remain in his commandments, his joy will be in us and we will get to experience the fullness of joy that comes from that. How beautiful is that? That the God and the creator of the universe would have created everything in such a way to know that the greatest way for you to be happy would be just to have more of him and to follow after him. And so the most loving thing he can do is to continue to give himself away and to continue to invite people to follow after him, to be connected to him because he's God, because he's good, and because he wants to bless us. And so the question really is, why aren't we obedient? What is it that causes us to mess this up? And so tonight's message, it's a little bit psychological. Uh, We're going to get into the mind. And a lot of this stuff, I just have to say right now, anything that I say from here on out, if it sounds smart, it's not me. It's John Mark Comer. He wrote a book called Live No Lies. And John Mark Comer's book uh, that I've been reading just the last couple weeks, took me a couple days to read it. And I went back and reread several sections because I just think this is brilliant, the way that he has dived into uh, truth and to really what it is to fight the battle that we all have to fight in our minds. And that's why this is a psychological battle is because there's a way that we are wired and a way that we are programmed that causes us to be disobedient. And I think if we understand that, that's going to help us understand how to counteract that so that we can live this life that's full of the joy of the Lord, the joy that he wants us to have as we know him, as we follow after him. And so before we get into all of that, uh, we need to get a couple of definitions the reason a lot of us are disobedient, yeah, we could get the churchy answer, sin, right? Like it's always sin. What's sin? Sin doesn't really mean much to anybody. So we're going to use the term disordered desires, that our desires are out of whack. And that's what causes us to, to be disobedient. And ultimately, uh, we're going to talk about truth. We're going to talk about lies. And so when I refer to truth, we've got this on the screen here. Truth is believing an idea that corresponds with reality. Believing an idea that corresponds with reality. That means that a lie is something that does not correspond to reality. And so if I believe an idea that doesn't correspond to reality, if I believe I can fly, if I believe I can touch the sky, right? What is reality? Reality is when I jump off and I hit the ground. Right? That's reality. Reality is when we understand what is actually true. I can't fly. If I'm really willing to risk that, the higher up, the harder the fall. Right? So we want to be rooted in truth. We want to be rooted in reality. And here's the thing about our minds. Our minds are brilliant. The way that that these things work, this is what sets us apart from all other creatures on earth. Right? I used the example this morning at Emmanuel of, uh, I have a cat, 
right? Some of you are like, oh, Merlin. Uh, so we have a cat, uh, and he's uh, just this big fluffy thing. He's awesome. And uh, Merlin, what separates our minds, like Merlin can imagine that if there's a food dish, that there should be food in it. And so when there's not food in that dish, he will suddenly get real cute, and that's when he wants to dart between your legs, and that's when he's like chirping away, and then you feed him, and then you just don't see him for hours, right? Because he got what he wanted. So a cat, a dog, whatever it may be, uh, they understand what reality is, but they can't imagine what isn't. And here's what I mean by that. When's the last time your dog came up to you and was like, I have this really good idea for a phone app. You know, like it would be basically this app that would allow you to schedule when you're going to walk. Like dogs don't do that, right? A dog cannot imagine what is not and then make that thing become real. And yet that's the brilliance of humanity, isn't it? That within us we can conceive of a reality that is not yet but could be. And so as a society, we've been able to progress. This is why we've gotten more and more technologically advanced is because we have the capacity within us to imagine what is not and then make it so. I can imagine, man, I'm hungry. I want some muffins. And then I can make it so. That's something that other creatures are not necessarily able to do at all, right? So... Now that we kind of understand this stuff, here's where our disobedience is rooted in. Our disobedience is rooted in a lack of trust that God ultimately wants our deepest happiness. You see, the devil persuades us to seize autonomy from God, thinking that we are better at discerning what is right and what is wrong than God is. And here's the thing. This is how the devil works. We're going to look at Genesis 3 real quick, and I'm going to summarize it uh, just to save us a little bit of time. But the devil, I, I don't know if you know this, the devil is not actually his name. The devil's a title. Jesus actually never refers to the enemy by name. We never get a name. The only thing he gets are titles. Satan means the accuser. Devil, that means the liar. And so when Jesus talks about the devil, he's saying the liar, meaning the one who can only lie, It's the one who's coming against us. And so when I say that our disobedience is rooted in this lack of trust, what it is, the devil plants an idea in our minds. Notice it's not a weapon. It's an idea about reality. But it doesn't actually correspond with reality, does it? That's what happened in Genesis 3. The serpent, who's more cunning, more crafty than any other creature in the garden, goes up to Eve and he asks a question. He plants an idea in Eve's head. He says... Did God really say you're not supposed to eat of any tree in the garden? Now, he knows it's not true, right? But think about any good lie. It's wrapped up in what? In mostly truths. If I'm like, sorry, I was late to church tonight, guys. There's a dinosaur on the road. You wouldn't believe that, right? That's not an idea that is rooted in any form of reality. It does not correspond with it whatsoever. The devil knows that. So the devil likes to take something that is mostly true and then he's going to twist it right at the end. Is it really true that God would hold out on you and not let you eat from any tree in the garden? And then Eve, of course, responds, no, he didn't say that. He just said we can't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or else we're surely going to die. And then here's where he gets her. This is where he plants the next idea. Surely you're not going to die. He knows that if you eat of the fruit that your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God. Don't you want to be like God? And that right there 
that is the lie that is beneath every other lie that we've been believing for centuries. Don't you want to be like God? And so the devil gets in there, like we said. What does he do? He convinces us that we should seize autonomy from God because we can better discern what's right and what's wrong. We have a better grip and a better understanding of morality than he does. That's ultimately the idea that is being planted within us every time that we seek this disobedience and then we pursue that disobedience. The serpent comes in and he gets us even today. God is not as good or as wise as he claims to be. He's holding out on you. And so you should take authority back from him for your own life because you're going to be better off. Deceptive ideas get as far as they do. Why? Because they appeal to those disordered desires within us. And notice how uh, this lie played to Eve's and it still today plays to our disordered desires. The next line in that passage in Genesis 3 was, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. This is why it's so helpful when we know that this is the lie behind all the other lies. It's because the devil's goal is to first isolate us and then to implant in our minds deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires, which we feel comfortable with because they get normalized by the status quo of our society. And so the deception, it is and has always been twofold. Again, one, it's to seize autonomy from God and two, to redefine good and evil based on the voice that's in our heads or the thoughts that, that we have. And then we believe that rather than trusting in the loving word of God. Here's a different way to frame it. Every human being is ultimately asking three questions. Number one, who is God? Is there a God? Are there many gods? That's the question we all ask first. Secondly, who are we? What is humanity? Third question, how then do we live? What is the good life is ultimately what we're asking. And so this is where our mental capacity to believe truth and to believe lies can harm us because that same capacity for us that has built up society and has allowed us to, to achieve brilliant things is what also is our greatest Achilles heel because if we can believe truths, if we can believe ideas that are rooted in reality, that means we can also believe ideas that are not corresponding with reality. And the devil plays off of that on us all the time. And so hopefully you see this. This is a battle that we fight in our minds that we have to fight. We have to believe truth. Why? Because uh, these ideas that correspond to reality, when we believe them, we show up to reality in such a way that we flourish and we thrive. We show up to our bodies. We show up to our interpersonal relationships. And above all, we show up to God himself in a way that's congruent with the creator's wisdom and good intentions for his creation. And as a result, we get the fullness of joy that he's promised. And so if this is a battle that we fight in our minds, Paul knew this. We got to remember Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says this. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So being obedient, right? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Do you see that? Like we have these disordered desires that the world says, no, that's normal. That's the status quo. Of course you should pursue that thing. Of course that's the way that it should be. And Paul's saying, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Learn how to think different thoughts. You see, because of what exists in our minds, when we believe ideas and we start to chase those ideas, what we do is we create neurological pathways in our brain. This is why for an addict, once they get hooked on something, they've created a neural pathway that to break that is incredibly difficult because you have to rebuild a whole new neural pathway inside your mind to respond differently. People who struggle with anxiety, it's the same idea that there's thoughts that can seize you and because you've taken a specific neural pathway, your body wants to respond similarly every time. But what's great about your mind is this, you can train it to learn new neural pathways. And so to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, what we're doing is we're literally creating new neurological pathways in our brain. So when the thought comes at us, when the devil comes at us and he puts the lie in our head, we have to reject it. And we have to think something different. Think something different than you thought before. And so how do we do that? How do we get better at these things? I get it. You're just like, Great, sermon on obedience. Thanks, Captain Obvious. I know that God wants me to be obedient to him. So how do we actually do this? That's what we want to focus on here as we wrap up. Number one, we want to commit to the practices that foster our spiritual formation. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on each one of these things at all because I want you to be able to go do that yourself. In fact, if you go into the sermon notes inside of version, there's a link to a website that we're going to put up on the screen in a moment here that's going to explain every one of these in detail. Yeah, we'll just go to it now. Practicingtheway.org. At the very bottom, you'll see when you go to the homepage, a button that says View Archives. And if you go there, uh, this is John Mark Comer, the guy who wrote the book. This is his website of practices that their church in Portland committed to. And uh, so he explains what each one of these things is. So let's go back to the screen before that. If we want to to, to focus on our spiritual formation, that's just another way of saying our discipleship. We want to focus on these things. Prayer, silence and solitude, fasting, confessing our sins to someone, repentance, and scripture. Do you see it? If we focus on these things, this is how you're able to create new responses to, to things that, that, to the inputs that you get each and every day. If you're used to having the same response, what happens if you've spent the day in prayer? What happens if you spent time reading God's word, memorizing God's word, so that when you have the thought, you can identify the lie, and then you can back it up with scripture on why it's a lie and on what's really true. Right? These things just don't happen by accident, though. It takes work. That's the hard part. Because nobody likes work, right? Like, we just don't like it. But here's the key the key to spiritual formation is to change what we can control, that being our habits, so that we can influence what we can't control. And that's our flesh. You can't control the thoughts that come into your head, but you can control how you respond to them. If you're willing to commit yourself to growing and to pursuing your own spiritual formation, I promise you this, you're going to get the fullness of joy that Jesus promised because as you learn what it is to follow after Jesus and to be obedient to him and you plant yourself in his word, you plant yourself in these things, you're going to see God show up in a powerful way and he's going to wreck your life. And I mean that in a good way. 
Some of you have committed yourselves to discipleship and I've seen the difference in your lives. And so if you want to know what that's all about, we are a church that is all about that. And at some point in the future, maybe we're going to be able to do a sermon series, I don't know, about practicing the way where we can look at those things more in depth. Uh, if nothing else, I promise you this, if you get into an e-group and you commit yourself to these things, God's going to change your life. And that's the, the second thing here. Commit to the church. Commit to your spiritual formation. Commit to the church. Why? You can't do this alone. No one was meant to follow Jesus alone. In fact, Jesus himself, he didn't have a single disciple. It wasn't just one person following after him. He had disciples, plural. Jesus spent his time in community, which means we should follow his cue. We need to spend our time in community. We need each other. That's the reality here. Right? If I want to get better, if I've got sin that I've been harboring in my life, but I never tell anyone about it, how do I get over that? I can hope that God might show up, but what happens when there's a group of guys in my life that love me, that aren't impressed with me, that I can be vulnerable with and say, guys, I had a thought this week and I didn't like it. And if I can confess it to them, they can help me identify what the lie is. They can help hold me accountable so that I can grow in my faith, and in my ability to follow Jesus. That's what we all want. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. We've got to follow Jesus together. We need each other. And I tell you this, as we follow Jesus together and not alone, we're able to do a couple things. One, we can discern Jesus' truth from the devil's lies. We can identify when he's coming at us and when he's putting those thoughts in our head that just simply don't correspond with reality. We need those people in our lives who can see when we're going down a dark path. And I'm grateful for some of the folks that are here in this room and the times that you've done that for me, that you saw that I responded to somebody with a snappy comment in a way that I didn't need to. And you held me accountable to help me be more loving. We need people like that. Two, uh, as we do this together, we get to help one another override our flesh by the Spirit. Uh, Steve Gladen recently said this. He said, it's better for us to confess our temptation before we get to the point of having to confess our sin. If we want to live the spirit-filled life, it's going to happen in community. And we need each other to be able to confess these things and to get these things out there so that we can be filled with the spirit, so that we can fight off uh, the lies of the devil. And then lastly here, when we get to do this together, it helps us to form a robust community of deep relationships that function as a counterculture to the world. If we don't want to be conformed to the patterns of this world any longer, just look at the world. It's chaotic, isn't it? If you look at what's on the news, if you look at what's going on in politics, it's really easy to start to feel like things are a little bit hopeless or to feel like things are a little bit bleak. And yet, when we know that God is in control over it all, and when instead of putting our focus on that, on what mainstream media wants to feed us, on what Hollywood wants to feed us, when we put our focus on what does Jesus want from me? Here's the beauty of this series. We're following this up right after we did this series on Micah 
We talked about how it's so easy to overcomplicate what it is to follow Jesus. And yet we saw, what's the way? How do we do that? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Right? It's a simple thing. And so that's what I appreciate about a night like tonight is we, we looked at some specifics and now this is more of a big picture. As we take a step back, when Jesus says he wants obedience from us, how does he want that? He just wants us to chase after him and he wants us to do that together. And in the same way that as I learned to speak the love language with my wife and then I got to unlock the treasures that she has to share, I promise you this, God is waiting to unlock his heart for you so that you can see the treasures that he has for you. It is a joy to know Jesus. It's a joy to follow after him, amen? How many of you, he's just absolutely changed your life? That's why you're here. That's why most of you are here. And if you've never heard that message, if you've never seen how he wants to work in your life, I just invite you to say yes to him tonight. What do I mean by that? Let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes as the band comes back up. What I mean by that is this, that the call to follow Jesus is not easy. It requires sacrifice to live life in community. And yeah, it's worth it. And there's a lot of people in this room who would tell you it's worth it. And so what it means to say yes to Jesus is to to recognize that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he gave himself to absorb the wrath of God because we were the disobedient children. And yet we don't have to bear the punishment of that. And in the same way that the religious leaders they didn't respond the way that they should have. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to be the ones uh, who ignore the call to repentance. We want to be like the tax collectors and the prostitutes who heard the message and who had soft hearts that God was able to speak to. And so he's calling you into relationship with him. There's an invitation for every single one of us to follow after him to lay it all down and to just go where he goes, to do what he does. That's who we want to be. And so Jesus, would you just help us to be people like that? People who practice the way. For some of us, maybe that means that we're going to go to that website and we're going to look up what those, those aspects of spiritual formation entail. And we're just going to pick one of them. And we're going to say, God, I want to get better at this in my life. And that's just taking that first step of obedience, of learning what it is to follow after him. For others of you, you've been doing that for a while. And it's time that you helped lead other people in that process. And so maybe God's calling you to start your own e-group. Maybe God's calling you to start your own discipleship group, to grab a couple people with you and say, hey, I'm gonna go hard after Jesus. Do you wanna go with me? And maybe some of those folks don't have any idea what that means and that's okay. Because you're gonna be able to tell them and you're gonna show them what that looks like. For others of you, you're like, this is all new to me. This is a little bit overwhelming. Um, I'm just here to remind you, God is good. There's an idea that does not correspond with reality, that God is holding out on you, that God is disengaged in this world, that he created it and he stepped away. There's ideas that he doesn't even exist. 
Those ideas don't correspond with reality because I've experienced his grace. I've experienced his love in my life as so many other people in this room have. And I'm just here to tell you that he wants a relationship with you. And he's made it clear how you can follow after him, how you can know him and be known by him. And he promises to give you fullness of joy. And so God, would you let us experience that fullness of joy? Would you let us experience what it is to live the good life? We love you. We just invite you to continue to move in this time, to continue to work in this time. And we just give it all to you. We pray it in your name. Amen.
sing this together. I'll build my life upon your love. We're really going to do it. We're going to sing it together because that's what we want to do together as the church. Amen. We've got a great architect with a lot to build. Let's sing together. Come on. we remember that Jesus spoke your love language first. He pursues you. He pursued you and continues to pursue you. And he's calling us to continue to kind of give that love back in obedience to him. And in that exchange, you will deepen the joy you experience in life. That's the gift. That's the beauty of it. And so I just want to thank you for being here, tuning in online if you're watching there. Thanks for being in the room. If you are a guest with us, uh, thanks for trusting us and giving us a little bit of your time, investing uh, our hope and our challenges that you would find this to be a place where you can put down some roots and actually live life alongside others and that you and maybe in your spiritual journey would begin to discover what many people here have discovered, that Jesus really does love you. 
He really does care about you, and he longs to be in a, an ongoing relationship with you. So if you are a guest, uh, meet Lyle at the 10-minute party. It lasts less than 10 minutes. Uh, right back there, you'll get free kettle corn uh, for guests. For those of you who call this home, you don't get any, and that's okay. Uh, but like, hey, thanks for partnering with us. Uh, we do that giving here uh, a little bit different. We don't pass a plate. We got giving boxes in the back. Many folks do that online. This is Veterans Day this coming Thursday. So any here who has served with us, would you just kind of lift up your hand? Thank you very much for serving, and uh, we applaud you, and we we thank you for your gift to our country and the blessings that you helped uh, fight for and keep and sustain for us. And so last but not least, uh, this coming Saturday is our second Saturday food distribution. So we're packing Friday morning at Caring Ministries. We're giving out uh, food here next Saturday morning at 830 right here in the parking lot uh, to is, we have like two pallets of food when it's gone, it's gone. But we'd love your help with that, especially if you're new. That's a great easy on-ramp uh, to serve around here. So you can find all the information for that in the app, along with uh, the women's event that's happening next Saturday. You can email Diane. All that info is in the app as well. So friends, thanks for gathering here. May you go and live a life that's filled with the joy of Christ as you align your lives to walk in that obedience with him. May he help you and discover more and more the joy that awaits you as you do. Go in peace.